Hey everybody, today is our interview with Dr. Jillian Kenny of Trinity College in Dublin, who is going to talk to us about the position of women in medieval Ireland as part of our ongoing epic-length series on the medieval Irish geish. And if you're listening to this as a podcast, you can also see it as a webcast on YouTube, where in the video portion, I draw Jillian's portrait right before your very eyes. She asked to be drawn as a specky queen Mev, Mev from the Irish epic the Toynbo Quolni. Specky meaning with spectacles, I guess. You can see that on our brand new Dead Ideas channel at youtube.com. All right, let's get to the interview. Thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, whose honor price is set at three MacBooks and a Roland synthesizer. (laughs) 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 I'm B.T. Newberg, but you can call me Brandon. We are continuing our monster-length epic series on the medieval Irish geish, a kind of soul-binding personal rule or jinx of doom that spells your imminent destruction if you fail to obey it. For example, it was geish for Cahullan to eat dog meat or for King Conaira to walk clockwise around his capital. And if you violate a geish, the power of fate basically rains hell and fury down on you, usually resulting ultimately in your death. See our previous episodes for a whole lot of fun about that. Today, we are going deeper still into the medieval Irish culture that spawned this dead idea with particular focus on women this time. We touched on the topic of women in parts one and two, and Andre summarized the situation as medieval Ireland was the most sexist of all medieval cultures other than all the other medieval cultures. (laughs) And you saw some of the ways that gender gets portrayed in, shall we say, an interesting manner in stories like Jarmage and Ganya, which Andre told in part three, and Cahullan's adventures with the warrior woman Skathak and her rival Aoife, which I told in part four. But enough of our amateur blabbering on. You expect more from us, which is why we are finally going to the experts. We have got not just anyone to hang out with us today, but Jillian Kenny, who specializes in women, family, sex, and magic in medieval Ireland. Thanks for being on the show, Jillian. Um, You're very welcome, uh, Brandon. Thanks very much for having me. I'm delighted to be your first um, interview. I'm breaking your virginity, obviously. (laughs) Oh, you (laughs) can. I'm delighted to take your interview. (laughs) I will gladly give it up. I'm hoping my wife will give me a hall pass for that one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, fine. Don't worry about it. You can be my secondary husband or something. There's an early Irish law precept for it. I wouldn't worry. Legally, we might have to invoke prima nocti or something there. Yeah, I wouldn't worry about it. I'll I'll, I'll clear it with her. It's fine. (laughs) Now, folks, this is not going to be a typical interview, as you can already tell. It's more like just hanging out over a pint. So you have to kind of imagine us being at like an Irish pub or something here with some hustle and bustle going on about us and... Maybe somebody playing snooker or something in the background. Anything we should add to that image, uh, Jillian, of the Irish um, pub? O- o- old men. A lot of old men <laughs> sitting at the bar and just kind of staring into their pints. A lot okay. of that. Yeah. All right. And uh, unnecessary music. Quite quite a bit of unnecessary music. Okay. So that would too be an Irish pub. Too much music. Okay. Too much music. Yeah, you can't talk. That's the thing. You have to stay quiet. So there's okay. quite a lot of that. <laughs> 
So we're just hanging out here, uh, but I do want to keep one aspect of the formal interview genre, which is telling you just how effing awesome Jillian is. <laughs> oh, blimey, really? Wow. Yeah. I'll send you the check later. <laughs> so Jillian Kenny teaches at Trinity College in Dublin in the Center for Gender and Women's Studies and also got appointments at the University of Limerick and University College Dublin. And to go along with that, she's currently wearing a T-shirt that says, uh, what does it say? It the says f- the future is, is female. Excellent. Then the past was also quite female as well. So, you know, that. usually about 50%. Yeah. Yes, usually. And sometimes more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, her work focuses in particular on cultural exchange through intermarriage, because you see in the period right after the one that we've been talking about in this series, the Normans started coming over from England and screwing things up royally. So what happens when that collision of cultures comes into the bedroom? You can find that out, among other things, in her book, Anglo-Irish and Gaelic Women in Ireland, circa 1170 to 1540. Anything else I should add, Gillian? No, this is uh, fantastic. Thank you. I will do bar mitzvahs and weddings as well. Blimey. (laughs) Well, the (laughs) the last thing I'll add is that Jillian has been a real treat to interact with, even just digitally, over email and Twitter. And I'll give you a taste. Just this morning, she posted on her Twitter feed, favorite early Irish law term of the day, why the one that refers to a man who follows his wife's arse over a border. (laughs) (laughs) I'm proud of my people. (laughs) So, So what is that term, Jillian? Uh, well, it's about, um, it actually relates to, um, men whose, um, honor prices are set at their wife's honor price. Um, uh-huh. so if you follow your wife's arse over a border, it means you marry a foreigner. It's just a very poetic way of saying it. So in a sense, you're, you're dead to your kin in that way. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we're, we're, uh, fiercely regional, uh, people. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just a nice way of saying someone who's essentially left the village. And gone away, <laughs> oh, so he can and, sort himself out with his missus. Oh, and what and what is the actual word? Uh, you know, I don't know because I've read it in in translation. I'd have to look okay. up the uh, okay. old Irish for it. Yeah, I don't actually know the old Irish for oh, it. Okay. It's, it's a gap in my knowledge. Okay, so listeners <laughs> will actually have to write in to inform you. <laughs> write in, yeah, and tell me what the old Irish for arse is, please. Okay, <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> and we'll be talking about honor price in just a moment, too. Uh, okay, so basically what I want to talk about today is what it was like for women in medieval Ireland to really get a feeling like we're there. And then after that, we're going to circle round to the idea of the geish and how women show up in these stories involving geisha. Um, okay, well, um, I suppose uh, the first thing that needs to be said is it's it's not a particularly sexist society at all. It's fairly standard um, early medieval uh, kind of uh, gendered society. So essentially women do everything within the home and men are responsible for stuff outside of the home. Um, well, from from uh, our perspective, that still sounds pretty sexist. Yeah, Before the well, times. You know, it's, yeah, in in terms of its context, it's pretty much standard. What, sure. what does what does make it a little bit unusual is the fact that women had uh, free access to things like divorce. Okay. Um, so it's quite similar to say Viking women in some respects, and mm-hmm. women could enter into contracts and things like that independently of their husbands. Certain types of women, so that is quite unusual at a time in Europe when, thanks uh, mainly to the influence of the church women's rights are becoming more and more circumscribed. But, you know, there's there's also 
it's not by any means a, um, a kind of a matriarchy in early medieval Ireland. Women are heavily uh, circumscribed, generally, legally speaking. But mm-hmm. if they are women of a particular status, um, at a particular level of wealth, then there are ways and means for them to exert some kind of autonomy. So, um, again, like most areas in history, uh, you have um, more freedom the more economically free you are, especially as a woman. So it, it rings as true for Ireland as it does for other areas, you know. Hmm. Um, but in terms of what they did, um, if you look in the early Irish law codes, there are references to, of course, there's women stayed in the home generally and they were expected to marry and bring up children. But, for example, there are women who also worked. We do have evidence okay. of female poets um, who were especially dreaded because in the um, early Irish society, well, words have power. Mm-hmm. So you can curse people. And it was mm-hmm. believed that it actually had physical effects. And female poets were quite ostracized. There are female healers. Would that have been um, one of the satire poets then? Yeah, satirists were particularly um, uh, dreaded. Um, so that that's uh, why in, in, in this period in Irish history, um, at feasts and so on, poets had the seat of power beside the chieftain because you, you didn't want to... Well, you didn't want to piss them off, basically, yeah. because they could... <laughs> Uh, they could um, magically kill you through the, the words of their, the power of their words. Yeah. Um, so Some... women who could do that were, uh, were especially dreaded because, um, women were associated with magic and often with black magic. So they were particularly dreaded. But you get women doing it, not many, uh, a variety of things. Um, a very noted female occupation was to, to, to be an embroideress. Okay. Embroidery was incredibly important. How people looked, what you spent on your embroidery, how you um, uh, sort of decorated yourself was extremely important and an indicator of status. So that's, um, say, female embroideresses, for example, um, had a, a slightly higher honor price than most other women. So, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a very rural society. It's, it's quite uh, fragmented. There's no towns, really. There are proto-towns around the monasteries. Uh, there are towns uh, set up by the Vikings, but um, it's really quite quite rural um, and very heavily organised around kin. Um, so yeah, you know, it's not like it's it's uh, all about. It's a warrior society. Women somehow slot into it, and it's all about raiding, cattle raiding, and that's the currency of the time as well. So you know, it's that kind of a society. Okay, so it wasn't by any means equal opportunity. It wasn't like a female no. paradise. But no, it wasn't the worst thing ever either. No, it's not. I mean, if you look at the legal codes, um, I mean, what people always find hilarious is the fact that um, there are <laughs> there are various reasons why you can divorce your husband. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because marriage in medieval Ireland is a civil contract. It's not religious. Um, it didn't take place in a church. It was simply a betrothal ceremony with the families and that was it. Mm-hmm. And if you could divorce your husband if he was too fat for sex, um, <laughs> you could, which is like brilliant. I mean, you know, what? That's the best think, period in history ever. I think I read also you could divorce him if he couldn't get it up. Yes, he could. Yeah, if he was <laughs> impotent. Um, if he was uh, gay, which, you okay. know, makes sense. Uh-huh. Um, if he um, if he spoke about your sex life, you could <laughs> divorce him. Oh, so, so if he gossiped behind your yeah, back. If yeah, locker he, room he, talk was outlawed. If he was like, 
Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Trump I am such trouble. <laughs> oh God, Trump would be. I mean, Trump would literally be stoned to death. So I'm not really. He um, he would be in such trouble. He would be brought. He would be heavily fined in medieval <laughs> Ireland for that kind yeah. of talk. I, I can't imagine how much honor price he would have to pay out to people. <laughs> um, I think he would be fairly fairly bankrupt at this stage. Uh, you know, he would have people uh, fasting against him outside Trump <laughs> Tower uh, to try and get their money out of him. Might be a good idea, actually. America, fast against Trump. Do it. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's, it's starting here. We're starting a movement. <laughs> Come on, America. Sit outside Trump Tower and don't eat until he does what you want him to do. Yeah. Failing that, do a satire spell on him over social media. <laughs> Possibly could be arranged. I mean, I know people who do it. <laughs> I okay. don't know. What else can you do? I, uh, I want him to turn orange. Done. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so let, let's go with the honor price thing here. And uh, if anybody's um, wondering, we should have said this at the start, but if anybody's wondering what honor price is, go back to our previous episodes. But the basic thing is everybody in society, based on your rank and station, has a set legal honor price. And uh, you can collect that, or your kin can, if you're killed, injured, insulted, etc. It determines your, uh, how much, the size of the contracts that you can enter into and a whole bunch of other economic things. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but it did, it did, it did vary, um, as, as all things can on the status of the people involved. So yeah, it is quite complex, really. So okay. is it, is it true that a woman's honor price was legally set at precisely 50% of that of a male peer? Um, yeah, well, there are variations. The thing is, in the Irish law codes, there's no one particular code that you use for the entire island. So there are variations. Okay. And honor codes varied um, depending on the status of the woman. And if I give you, like, a, set it in context for you, there are approximately uh, nine different types of marriage in the Irish law codes. Um, and one of them involves the marriage of a higher status woman to a lower status man. Mm. And that affects mm -hmm. honor price as well. Mm -hmm. um, and honor price is also um, affected by things like as I mentioned, if he follows the arse of his wife or if he marries a foreigner, mm -hmm. um, if he marries an heiress, mm -hmm. um, his honor price is matched to hers. So it doesn't always hold true. It's not, okay. it's not always a given. It, it's, um, I mean, it, it, our, our medieval Ireland is unusual because it does have a law code or law codes, which are pretty standard, mm -hmm. but they are always accompanied by, by glosses and commentaries which okay. change depending on the, the lawgiver and the area it's given in. So it's quite subtle. So if you were a lower status woman and married a higher status husband, your honor price raised or his um, lowered? No, it would be it would be um approximately half of his, yeah. If you were okay. lower class marrying up. It so, can change if the male female is um unbalanced the other way. Okay. That's when it can change usually. Okay. Okay. So, but yeah, I mean, um, it's not particularly a comment on, um, sort of the, the, the way women were viewed. Um, women were viewed legally as akin to children and children's honor prices are not full adults as well. Um, <laughs> Correct. you know, so they're, they're viewed, and uh, like in many law systems of the time, um, they, they, they weren't viewed as having any particular agency, um, because your honor price is to do with, of course, legal system so women could not give testimony in court oh um you know things like that so that's why generally they have a lower honor price they have less value hmm. to the community in general that's just the way it was kind hmm. of viewed at the time and i mean the very interesting thing of course is that the some of the irish laws 
may go back quite a good a good amount. I mean, it used to be thought that they were sort of set in stone and fossilized from the Iron Age. That's probably not how it was. There's certainly heavy early Christian influence on a lot of them. Um, but but certainly some of them are are pre-Christian. Some of them are older, but probably the ones about women have been heavily influenced by the monastic uh, scribes who wrote them down and altered them. So, yes. you know, you do have the influence of that. Okay. One other thing about this that I want to ask you, because I found a reference to this in Reese Patterson's book. She said that if the woman could provide for Fuva and Ruva, which is the military service owed to your lord, you could, as the woman, get a higher honor price up to 100% of a male peer. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably in relation to um, uh, the the Bangamarba, which is the female heir, who is a very unusual figure in, in Irish law. But, but yeah, I mean, it, it is possible that you could do it because um, the law is fluid on some of the points. Okay. So if you did have the capacity... It's not beyond bounds that your honor price could be hired up. Absolutely. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Okay, let's go to marriage now. Um, I want to hear okay. a little more about that. So uh, a married woman could actually keep her own property, and it wouldn't necessarily become the property of the husband, correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. So um, they would get married, and he would pay the uh, bride price, the quivka. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Quivka uh, is how you say it? Yeah. Okay, Quivka. Okay. Yeah, it's C-O-I-B-C-H-E, but it's pronounced yeah. Quivka. I love nice. old, I love Irish spelling. <laughs> yeah, right. Completely random. So, really. Um, so, um, yeah, so he, he would pay the right <clears throat> price and she'd bring property with her. Now, probably in, in reality, uh, when people got married, um, the man would probably bring land to it and the woman would probably bring the majority of movables, mm-hmm. which would mainly consist of cattle. Okay, so movable wealth. Okay, yeah. She had movable wealth. Mm -hmm. And then it's quite complex, but when that's pooled together at marriage, Mm -hmm. um, she still holds on to a portion of her movable wealth. So if they divorce, Mm -hmm. and it's not her fault, the crucial thing is it's not her fault, she will get about a third of hers back. Now, bearing in mind that it should have multiplied and increased in value since she came into the marriage. Mm -hmm. So she will get about a third of that back when she leaves. Well, if, the man, yeah. yeah, if it's not, if it's not her fault, and um, if it's her fault, it could be substantially reduced and she may not get anything. <laughs> what if it's the man's fault that they divorce? Do, does he not get some of his no, back? It doesn't work that way. Okay. Yeah. I expected yeah, as much. Go. Unsurprisingly. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, because of course, this is the whole idea of uh, women being responsible for the generation of heirs and, mm. you know, they could be trusted and blah, blah, blah. So sure. they needed to be spotless okay. in how mm-hmm. they, but it's an, it's an interesting part of um, Irish medieval history as well because um, you could divorce your husband um, and he could divorce you if you were both uh, if you were infertile. There's also a provision where you can leave your husband for a year, um, have sex with another man, have a baby by him, and then bring that baby back to your original husband. <laughs> so you're actually allowed to do that. You wow! Know? Yeah, that's it's really interesting. You can have <laughs> yeah. like. You can go, I, I can't, you can't, I, you can't give me a baby. So I'm going to go here and have a baby and then I'll be back. Huh. Well, that's, yeah. that's really we cool because that's probably the closest thing to polygamy that in the other direction, uh, where yeah, like the yeah, wife yeah, can yeah. have multiple male partners. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, um, yeah, I mean, the, it's, um, th- there's no, the, the barrier to it, of course, is the fact that, uh, 
the laws as we get them have been heavily Christianized and mm-hmm. therefore they are uh, completely on the side of sort of, um, sure. you know, chaste marriage. No idea what happened in the past before mm. this period in Ireland. Um, but the, the, um, casualness of the Irish attitude to, uh, premarital sex mm-hmm. and the lack of, of, uh, um, illegitimacy in Irish law. Children are not illegitimate in Irish law if the parents are not married. Uh, there's no concept of it. And mm-hmm. um, ch- children are just children, and that the father, if the father claims them, uh, that's how that process begins of mm-hmm. children becoming heirs. So the fact that that exists in Irish law is is an interesting development because it does kind of speak to the idea that um, social, um, or sorry, sexual mores were somewhat more relaxed amongst the Irish mm. than they were in other areas of Northwestern Europe at that period, you know. Um, mm. And you get it in, in the later period when the, um, when the Anglo-Normans come over and they are bringing over uh, Western European ideas about, uh, you know, chaste marriage coming directly from Rome and from church reforms in the 12th century and even earlier. Um, the Irish, they love the fact, I mean, you get these Norton lords who come over and they will, they will live a, a life that's based on English legal code in terms of property inheritance and, the, and crime, but their sexual lives and their social lives are Gaelic. So mm. they will keep more than one wife. Hmm. So they sort of get the both, best of both worlds because right. they could have several wives. I don't know whether it would be a good idea to have several wives though. It sounds like a lot of work to me. It would be completely (laughs) exhausting, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, if they all, I mean, I, I mean, we used to laugh at this probably, but you know, if, if as women do, if they live close to each other and they, you know, their cycles got in sync, can can you imagine? Do you know what I mean? It'd be like, I'm leaving the country for about a week. I'll see you (laughs) all then because I just can't handle it really. So yeah, I think it sounds, like a better idea than it is. But yeah, certainly there's loads of stuff in the law codes, um, in the, in the English records about Norman lords, you know, having, um, sex with Irish women and it's mm-hmm. not allowed because of course it's, you know, it's seen as fornication, um, mm-hmm. it, by, by the later people. But it's interesting. It's, it doesn't, it's not in, it's not in the Irish kind of social system, mm-hmm. despite the heavy Christianization and the influence of the monks. Mm-hmm. Um, the attitudes to sexuality are much freer, which is very interesting considering um, Irish attitudes uh, uh, recently, the last couple of hundred years, became incredibly prudish. Mm. So it went completely the other way, Obviously. whereas in our past, it's a free-for-all, literally. Okay, one the thing Irish I want to I want to clarify with you is uh, it, yeah. it was really interesting when you said that the uh, attitudes toward premarital sex were much more casual because uh, something that Andre said, and neither of us are experts by any means. So uh, just, you know, feel free to just slap us up silly for this. But he described uh, the situation being that basically if you had sex with a woman, that that constituted getting married to her. So the idea of premarital sex is kind of like, it doesn't make sense the way he described it. Is that not, not accurate? No, I, I think I know, I think I know what he's referring to. It's one of the classes of marriage. There are nine classes of marriage and there okay. is a type of marriage, which is a casual marriage, which is basically a marriage that lasts a night. I mean, and again, it's the Christian, it's the Christianizing influence. You're, you bang someone. You wouldn't actually, you know, go, I'm marrying you. It's the act of sex constitutes the so contract. It's, so that one is till dawn do us part. Pretty much. <laughs> uh, and it's just, thank you very much. And then if children issue, that's, that's another, that's another part of it. That's a whole other but, yeah, issue. 
it's like going with prostitutes and something. That's that's the way that's kind of rationalised. Um, uh-huh. I mean, uh, there's also in in the in the non-Irish Western Christian tradition there are um, you know clandestine marriages, okay, uh, which are very common, mm-hmm. um, particularly sure. from the 12th century on, where people marry without without the priest because you didn't need it according to church law at the time, and it was that it's it's a contract whereby. The, the act of sex formalizes the marriage. So you will say, I I will marry you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have sex and the contract is made. And that's mm-hmm. a formal contract in the Western Christian tradition. But it's not the same as the Irish one. Okay. The Irish one is the priests or the, the scribes who wrote the laws trying to tidy it up a bit and make okay. it more respectable than it is. Yeah. Okay. This also brings up uh, a question that, that we came up with and couldn't answer in our episodes, which yeah. was, um, we were discussing uh, a female slave, which they did have some slaves in medieval Ireland. They did, they um, did a lot of slaves, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. And we were wondering, in that situation, did the owner have, like, unlimited rights to satisfy his male desires on his female slave, or was she protected in some sense by this idea that you kind of halfway got married if you, and then you were on the hook economically in some sense, um, if you had sex? Uh, it's an, it's an interesting question because there are, um, you know, motifs about, like the, 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 the classic story is, uh, Nile of the Nile, Nile of the Nine Hostages was born of a slave woman, you know, but made his way up to the kingship. Um, mm. um, the most likely thing, of course, is that sexual abuse was was rampant mm. um, amongst owners and female slaves. Um, they're not particularly they're not particularly um, well protected slaves. They're almost mm. non humans in mm. many ways. But uh, what could happen is that if uh, if a sexual relationship between master and servant resulted in a child, mm-hmm. uh, the the slave's position would change if the master claimed the child, which is a formal legal procedure. Mm. So he would say, that is my son. And mm. therefore the son, because there's no concept of illegitimacy, becomes part of the kin and becomes mm-hmm. a contender for for kingship eventually. And that changes the slave's position because mm-hmm. she becomes then the mother of, of a future king. So, excuse me. So yeah, that sure. could happen. Yeah. But um, no, it's uh, yeah, it's a society where slavery is endemic. So okay. it's not particularly um, pleasant. I wouldn't imagine for the female slaves. I I don't imagine either. (laughs) All right. The last last thing I want to talk about before we move on to the concept of the geish uh, is uh, badassery. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Among women. So so, uh, we heard in the story of Cahollin from the Toyn of the warrior women. One was uh, Skahak and the other was Aoife. And I want to ask you, to what extent did this actually go on? I I, I realize it's going to be rare, but were there actually women who performed military service? Uh, no, not as such. Um, it links back to, there are some women who became involved in warfare and politics. It links back to um, the idea that when a woman married, she kept control of her movables that she brought with her. Now, mm-hmm. in some instances, the movables were armed men. Okay. So she actually okay. had her own private army. <laughs> so there are instances, they aren't rare, um, and women could get involved Um in in uh, political warfare in Ireland by swooping in with their men. Now, what normally seems to happen as well is that um, they tend to, when a woman married, she never became the sole responsibility of her husband. 
she maintained legal links with her own family, her mm-hmm. father and her brothers, and they influenced things to a massive extent. So in the instances I've seen, the women generally intervene on behalf of their own uh, family, their brothers and kin, not their husbands. In one instance, she went against her husband, opened Donegal, just completely went against his wishes and brought her mercenaries in mm. uh, to fight on her father's side. But it is, it is rare. It is rare for them to take to the field. What's more common is that they acted as um, um, negotiators. Uh, women oh. did do that. They did travel and they did um, at times of war, if hostages were taken, they, they were sent. They did it um, in our in Gaelic Ireland, and they did it with the English. Was there, there sense, are that? Was there some sense of the them being protected in some way? Like it would be dishonorable to just outright kill the female messenger sent, as opposed to a male messenger sent, or? Um, yeah, I think there, there is there is a there's a certain. I mean, there's it, it, yeah. I mean, it it's there's many many instances of women being killed um, in the annals. Uh, women weren't particularly, as with everything else, um, in, in medieval Ireland, you didn't want to kill the rich ones, the wealthier <laughs> ones with status, because then you'd have to pay the honor price. Right. Uh, it didn't really matter if you killed lower down. Uh, they're not particularly, there's no kind of chivalric view of women in okay. that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so they probably acted as negotiators because they were women of high status and, um, could, um, could do that. We're used to operating at a high level politically. Mm. So when the husbands were, you know, held for ransom, they would be sent to try and negotiate a way out. Um, also it depended if their, if their networks were such that they could appeal to both sides, then that could come in useful as well. And of mm. course there's this old, old idea of a woman acting as peacemaker. So it fits a certain narrative. And sometimes women slotted into that as well. So it's, yeah, it's quite, quite a very string of, of reasons as to why they could do it. But it did happen. Um, okay. It's not full of Xena warrior princesses, though. <laughs> um, I get some very peculiar ideas floated at me from people who appear to have seen miniseries that are full of nonsense mm-hmm. um, and talk about, but you know what? P- women were tough. People were tough. They were just tough anyway because it was mm-hmm. tough times to live. Sure. So they were, I think everyone was kind of a, a badass in medieval <laughs> artists anyway, you know, just in general. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. All right. So now I, now I want to make the transition where we circle around to talking about geish. So now we're going to talk about women and magic, women and geisha. Okay. Okay. Um, so... You told me earlier in our kind of back and forth and emails before this interview that the characterization of women in some of the hero tales is interesting. And uh, we may have gotten some inkling of that with some of the stories that we've heard in previous episodes here. But tell us more. Like, what what did you mean by that? And what's what's your take on that? Um, well, often the depiction of, of women in the hero tales um, is, is quite negative. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk about women who... who put a gesh on a man, mm-hmm. for example, uh, Dermot and Gronje. Mm-hmm. Um, it's seen as being done to fulfill the women's um, nefarious sexual uh, desires, and mm-hmm. it brings the destruction of the man. Mm-hmm. Um, women who, who dabbled in magic, who, who, who issued gesh, um, who issued a gesh and things like that, were viewed with terror um, mm. by the medieval Irish, um, in common with many societies, um, fed by... Uh, mainly the teachings of the church, but also perhaps older traditions that were wary of magic 
um, and the um, creatures that went alongside it. For example, this idea of the Tuha de Danan, uh, who turned into what are now the she in Irish fairy lore. So um, women were seen to have malicious intent with magic and um, the depiction of women in these stories as powerful because they can uh, put a gesh on a man and make him do things is something that speaks from the, I think, the, the darkest elements of the Irish psyche, the fear of, of women who have become so powerful that they cause destruction. The classic example is Queen Maeve, mm. who is depicted as a, well, the, 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 she, she is a, a, a goddess, really. She is a, a, an archetype. But mm. in the town, she is a woman who uh, sells her daughter to men sleeps with anyone who moves and the final image is image of her is of her pissing in the dust after she's caused <laughs> utter destruction you know so um i think um yeah i mean it speaks to this idea it's not it's not um it's not a a, a society that views powerful women um with a certain equanimity and mm-hmm. um, it is it has a deep seated fear of very powerful women and what they can do to warriors and mm-hmm. um, so you see this in the tales i think the tales are a reflection of it and you see it in the laws uh plenty of early um a kind of um uh, legal texts and uh, religious texts c- condemn the practice of magic and associate it with women um because th- there's a tremendous fear of the emasculating effect that powerful women who use magic because because a, a gash is a is a piece of magic mm-hmm. you know it's yeah. you're imposing on on um a sort of a, a taboo is a, a, an interesting word to use but a prohibition on someone sure. or or making them do something pretty much against their will mm-hmm. uh, there's two sides to it so yeah it can be seen as incredibly emasculating in a society where to be a warrior and to be virile mm-hmm. and all of those things was the 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 premium way a man had to be. So yeah, I think what you see is tremendous fear um, in in the in the hero tales. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we definitely saw that in the story of Jarmage and Grania, where Grania was the one who wanted Jarmage to you know get 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 with her, right? Yeah. And he didn't want to. No. Uh, but and he was like, no, I have to be honorable and I have yeah, to be yeah, my yeah. lord and we can't do this. But she's like, gesh, <laughs> yeah, now you have like, to. Yeah, she's like, snap my fingers <laughs> and it was a result in your death. Yeah, there's yeah. loads of them, you know. Um, I mean, the Cullen one as well is the um, is a good one as well. Um, and he kills his own son because of a gesh he put on his son mm-hmm. as well. It, it always ends in tragedy, but... Mm-hmm. but um, uh, the real things, I mean, they existed. There's, there's a, a mention in the, the, it doesn't mention, it's not mentioned often, there's a mention in the legal codes of, um, the, the gash on the King of Tara is to be, um, whole of body. That's the mm. only gash on him. But if you look elsewhere, there's loads of them. There's loads of them about how, you know, how he, they can travel in certain places, certain kings only kind of, uh, clockwise and how they can't leave certain yeah. areas after mm-hmm. dark. And mm-hmm. there's a whole raft of them. Mm-hmm. About, I mean, it's to do with, um, ritual kingship uh, mm-hmm. and the sacral nature of kingship, of course. Right. But I think the, the interspose, I mean, the, the, um, the use of women in these tales is often as well as a kind of a, you know, a sovereignty goddess. Mm-hmm. So she's there to sort of copper fasten the king's claim or to dismiss it because he made a bad judgment and things like that. So the gesh is a magical device that's used to get rid of or kind of copper fasten or, you know, um, approve of certain kings, but 
Yeah, I think it's, I think it speaks to the fact that, um, this is, there's this really interesting sort of general idea that, you know, oh, Irish women are really feisty and, you know, they've always, they've always been this, that and the other, like Maureen O'Hara shouting at stuff in The Quiet Man. Mm-hmm. They've always been this way mm-hmm. throughout history. And it's not that way at all. You know, it's, it's entirely different. Powerful yeah. women have been viewed with a level of suspicion in mm. common with many cultures, in fact. Let's go to the thing you said about them kind of echoing a sovereignty goddess kind of thing, which which goes back to uh, pagan Irish mythology. Yeah. Um, so when we think of a goddess today, we, I think it's the instinct is to analogize it to like the Judeo-Christian god, which we yeah. largely think of as well-intentioned, if nothing else, oh, very <laughs> benevolent, <laughs> right? Um, but... But in Irish mythology and most uh, pre-Christian European mythologies, mm-hmm. divinity was not necessarily all good or all benevolent. Benevolent, They might be the ones on your side, but it was more being a god or a goddess was more about having power and communicating with or, or interacting with that deity was dangerous because, yes. because this is, you were contacting something that could help you or could completely f you up <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah the the uh the irish gods um like many gods are capricious mm-hmm. um and they are gods which um are not particularly but there are benevolent gods of course there sure. are um there's uh dean cactus is the god of healing and mm-hmm. uh the, the great god the dagda is a quite a benevolent god but you've, you've ones like the the Morrigan, which in her three manifestations um, is basically uh, war and death, mm-hmm. you know, um, and she is the washer at the ford and she is seen before battle as in, in her old crone manifestation, washing the armor and the bloody guts of men who will uh, die that day. Mm. That's actually, there's a 15th century instance of English soldiers seeing that, which is really bizarre. Huh. They claim to have seen uh, an old woman washing blood and guts in a river on the way to a, an Irish battle, which huh. is quite odd, which t- speaks of a cultural crossover. But uh, yeah, the gods are, the Irish gods are not um, particularly, uh, they're not in that Judeo, well, the Judeo-Christian tradition, I mean, even still is quite a recent one. I mean, Yahweh is originally a god of storms, so he's not mm-hmm. particularly pleasant, but he's been molded into this idea. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, the Irish gods, even still today, because I know lots of pagans in the Irish tradition, mm. and they would think twice before trying to contact some, some, somebody like the Morrigan in their things. <laughs> They're like, I don't think so. I think I'll leave her to one side. But you have people like Bridget, who's, you know, uh-huh. seen as, as quite, you know, harmonious and, you know, quite giving. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, um, it's, it's, they're, 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 it, they're based on a, on a culture which, um, which lived in fear of yet also emulated strong characters. Um, so the gods represent that, you know, it's, it's, it's a time of strong men who ruled. Um, and, and you see that in the way the gods carry on, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, very cool. Very cool. Okay. Before we go, uh, because we're kind of getting close to time, but we've got a little bit of time left. Um, okay. there's something that I really want to ask you about that relates to women in marriage. Um, so we're kind of going back to that section right now. But okay. this was in uh, Narice Patterson's book, and I found it really fascinating. So we touched on the fact that uh, polygamy was okay for men. You could have more than one female partner. Yeah, but you could have uh, a principal wife, and every wife yes. after that was less than. So yeah. you've only got one main wife. The rest of them have to kind of 
get the you know what's left yeah and, that, and that's and, where and i'm your, going your with this wife could beat them up for three days <laughs> when you brought them into the house that's exactly what i was going to ask you about <laughs> yeah. she's allowed so, to beat them up <laughs> yeah so uh, the way i read it was okay if if you as the main wife the primary do yeah. not consent to him bringing in yeah. this concubine right yeah. then in that case you have basically legal immunity to do anything that you want uh, yeah. to the concubine short of murder, whereas the concubine yeah. can only fight back with t- nail scratching, and, insults, yeah. and like that sort she of thing. She can only defend herself. Uh, she can't use anything on you. You can't mark her. Uh, you can't damage her so much she's marked. Oh, uh, okay. Give her a hiding. I mean, I'd imagine there'd be Wait, plenty from of images. Th- the primary can't yeah. mark the concubine or the other way around? No. No, she can't mark the concubine. She can't, she can't damage her for life. Okay. But she can give her a good hiding. Okay. Um, over three days, and then that's it. Then they have to live together. Yeah. So, I mean, so the, the clock imagine? is ticking. <laughs> yeah, it's like right here. Go. And she walks in. <laughs> like go. Three days. Check the sundial. <laughs> When's the third day? And you give her a fair hiding. Yeah. Um, I'd imagine they fought back quite vociferously, though. You know, yeah. I don't sure. imagine they would take it. No. Um, so yeah, they would have, yeah, they, they were allowed to give them a hiding. Although in the medieval world in general, men were allowed to hit their wives, but not mark them. So it's quite a common idea. You're allowed to, you know, okay. ch- chastise, but, but not to mark, not to, not huh. to, um, incapacitate or, hmm. um, you know, um, mark forever. So yeah, it's quite common. Yeah. It's, I mean, unpleasant, but you know, <laughs> it's, it's the way it was. It's quite <laughs> wrong. You That's... know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, I, do, I, I like the three days thing. <laughs> I think that would make a great reality show, although yeah, I, I hope it would never, ever happen. First, yeah, the first wife never even slept, you know. <laughs> She's got someone to prod her away because she can give the new one another punch. Oh, You've got five hours left, right. Stand her up over there, let's go. Um, I'm sure people really suffered. I mean, I don't know whether it happened a lot, you know, because people have to live together and it was... sure. I mean, I don't think, to be honest, I mean, I really think that it was rare enough that people married more than one woman because you'd have to have quite a pile of, like, money, you know. I would say so, yeah. 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 I think it's actually quite rare. I mean, the ones that I've come across are chieftains, Mm -hmm. you know, and they they die and then people are like, you know, he died and he has, like, 56 sons and you're eating (laughs) that and you're like, probably had more than one wife then or... A very busy wife. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it would be people who are very high status. Um, yeah. also, um, you know, the interesting thing about early Ireland as well is, is that, um, you know, marriages, some marriages were take, were, were of course entered into it for political purposes. So you do have people who don't particularly like each other mm-hmm. who are married and then they might, he might meet someone else and, you know, but they could get divorced. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you're not stuck in it for life, you know. Um, right. But then divorce doesn't always affect the women terribly well. Mm-hmm. She loses a lot of her legal kind of uh, freedoms when she's not a wife. So mm-hmm. that she wanted to avoid that quite a lot. So, you know, it's not entirely, you know, cut and dried in that way. Mm-hmm. Well, is there anything else, Jillian, that you'd like to add, whether it's about women, marriage, geisha, whatever? Um, I, well, I, I suppose I just hope people, um, can, can listen and, and realize it's, it's quite a complex, interesting, unusual society in the context of its, of its uh, day. People tend to get very kind of amazed when their view of the medieval world is, is slightly turned upside down a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so medieval Ireland can do that 
mm-hmm. um, a wee bit because of the fact that there's lots of sexual freedoms mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the idea and view of, of how the Irish are and were mm-hmm. is very different a thousand years ago mm-hmm. to how the Irish view themselves, I think. So people mm-hmm. like me are constantly trying to overturn this idea of a quite prudish, church-run, very staunch Catholic society. We were nothing like that until quite recently. It's quite mm. interesting. This Gaelic <laughs> society was in full flow until about about the 17th century. And after that, you start to see the kind of creeping totalitarianism towards sexuality and family life that we, we suffered under for quite a while. But um yeah, I just hope people, you know, read up a bit on it and, and read the laws. It's proper bonkers stuff when you get into it. I mean, I just love it because it's, it's every time I read stuff, I discover new stuff. So it's it's properly mad and will turn your turn your view of the Irish upside down. Although I think a lot of people are quite comfortable in thinking we've always been very respectable and church going and stuff. <laughs> Rubbish. We're not absolutely rowdy, bawdy, badly behaved violent mongrels of europe that's what we are but anyway <laughs> and they can they can start with your book if they want to learn some stuff start about that book. yes even though it's you know written for academia so you know you might fall asleep after five pages but mm. um you know it, it's there's lots of really good stuff out there as you mentioned neris patterson is there there's loads of really good people who are writing on it so sure delving uh, people jillian do you have any projects that you're working on right now that you would like to share with us <laughs> Why yes, Brandon, I do. Um, I am, I am currently uh, doing a bit of research on the history of sex uh, toys. So sex oh. toys, yes, it is. Sex toys is my new thing. So I am. Um, it's not all dildos either. Um, there are many stories about uh, mirrored uh, rooms in uh, Chinese emperors' rooms and um, penis rings and uh, <laughs> extenders, which is another good one. Quite early on in human civilization, men were trying to extend their penis. I think that's not particularly amazing. Um, you know, I'd say that takes absolutely nobody by surprise. But it's interesting when they're doing it with bits of wood and bone. Yeah. So, very um, fun. Yeah, so uh, that's that's stuff I'm I'm looking into um, at the moment. Not just um, Irish stuff, you know. The Irish, the Irish don't seem to have been too big on sex toys. Well, we haven't seemed to found any. So um, <laughs> too busy off uh, raiding and killing each other. Um, maybe they just wore them out with use. Hey, so. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what we did because you know total total studs didn't need them. So I don't need them. I mean, Irish. <laughs> don't need a penis extender i'm amazed <laughs> so uh, i'd say oh. they did right i'd say they did but uh, uh, yeah that's what i'm doing so um i'll be hopefully um uh doing some stuff on that <laughs> <near me. laughs> well well we did um we did hear a little bit of that, of that on our show on our series on hysteria we did oh, see a little bit about sex toys in the part one of that so <laughs> the doctor's helping ladies by manually masturbating them exactly brilliant thanks so much doctors um yeah what would we do without you um yeah mine goes further back so it's uh quite a lot medieval and some um and early modern and right up but a lot of the stuff has been done on modern sex toys um not not so much not so much better quite 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 difficult to find a lot of information on them unsurprisingly but it it is out there believe it or not (laughs) people did do it People in the past were 
dirty bastards. Same as today, basically. So it's, it's a human universal. Well, you know what? There's nothing new under the sun, Brandon. I'll put it that way. <laughs> okay. Well, that's all the time we have. Jillian Canny, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks uh, for having me. And folks, if you like this and you want to learn more, like we said, check out her book, Anglo-Irish and Gaelic Women in Ireland, circa 1170 to 1540, likely available at your local university library. Uh, we will be back next week with another interview. We're still not done with this epic-length series. We're going to be talking to Finn Duar, the host of the Irish History Podcast, who's going to talk to us about the impact of the Vikings on Irish culture, which was big. So, in the meantime, check out his podcast. Uh, you can also find us at deadideas.net or on social media at deadideaspod or write to us at deadideaspod at gmail.com. All right, we'll see you next week. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. Remember, you can get your portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing by supporting the show at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. You can get lots of other great perks there, too, so check it out. All right, our epic series is ramping up toward its conclusion next week. We will talk to Finduar, and then have a brief interlude for a Valentine's Day episode, and finally, after that, we'll have our grand finale for the Gesh series. It's going to be epic. More epic than anything we've done before. I'm keeping it a secret, but trust me, you do not want to miss it. All right, see you next week for our talk with Finduar. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. <laughs>